Welcome to the Root of the Cause radio show. I'm your host, Dove, and today my guest is Patrick Toit. Patrick is a biochemical engineer who managed to do what is conventionally thought to be impossible, which was reversing his heart disease and lowering his coronary calcium score. Since being diagnosed with heart disease some years ago, he began to put his engineering skills to work and took a deep dive into the medical literature and methodically pieced together a systematic approach to turning his condition around. During his long journey, he learned of the many effects vitamin K has on the body and ultimately learned of the profound impact it has in the reversal of arterial calcification. Now, before we start the show, I wanted to give a little context to one part of the interview. So you'll hear Patrick mention something called protein S, C, and Z. And these are vitamin K-dependent proteins, meaning vitamin K serves as a cofactor to basically activate or turn on those proteins, among many other proteins as well. Now, what's interesting about those particular proteins is that they're actually anti-clotting proteins. Now, most people associate vitamin K, particularly K1, as a pro-clotting nutrient used to activate pro-clotting proteins in the body. And while there are pro-clotting proteins that are dependent on vitamin K to turn them on, there are also proteins that actually prevent clotting that are associated with vitamin K as well. So while you don't often hear about vitamin K as an anti-clotting nutrient, Patrick does an amazing job of sort of demystifying vitamin K and reassuring us that while vitamin K is very you know, misunderstood and often thought to be exclusively a clotting protein, in actuality, it's neither a clotting nor anti-clotting nutrient, but rather works indirectly as both. As a result of what Patrick refers to as triage biochemistry, meaning whatever the body needs at a given time, it'll prioritize the action of. And now for the disclaimer. Please keep in mind that this program is not intended to diagnose or treat any disease or health condition and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. The Root of the Cause podcast is solely informational in nature, so please consult your healthcare practitioner before engaging in any treatments that we discuss on the show. Now, if you enjoy the content on today's episode, please follow me on Apple Podcast. Now, to do that, just click that plus sign at the top right of your screen, just above the show logo. I'd also love to hear feedback, so it would be super awesome if you left a review as well as a five-star rating. It really helps out a lot. Okay, so without further delay, I present to you Patrick Toy. Patrick Toy, welcome to the show, man. Hey, happy to be here, man. I'm excited to do this. So you essentially reversed your heart disease by doing what many people thought was impossible, and that's lowering your coronary calcium score. And you know, one of the main drivers of that reversal was the therapeutic use of vitamin K, among other things that I'm sure we'll get into. Now, before we get into the specifics of that, if you would perhaps first share with the audience what a coronary calcium score is, and then let's maybe explain what vitamin K is and some of the, the key effects and functions it has on the body. Okay. A, a calcium score or a CAC score is done with a basically an MRI machine. Well, or an EBT machine. There's not too many EBTs left out there, but the MRI uh, typically has a 320 slice machine. You go in there just like you're getting uh, your joints checked, and it looks for calcium buildup in your arteries. And it's amazing piece of equipment. It just tells you what the bad news is or the good news, basically. Uh, and uh, yeah. Everyone yeah. should get a calcium score every year. Is it basically plaque? Like essentially when they say calcium, is that interchangeable with plaque in terms linguistically speaking? Plaque and calcium are interchangeable. And to be even more blunt, it's Got bone. It. It's a very soft form of bone that's inside your artery. 
And as you can mm-hmm. probably imagine, bone in your pipes is really not a good thing. Right. Okay. I would imagine. Now, in terms of the score, how would we sort of quantify that in terms of severity of how bad or let's say worse? Because obviously any score is not good, especially in terms of age, because obviously as someone gets older, you would expect a higher level relative to their age. So how would you go about you know, kind of determining the severity of their score? The scoring is done by a Dr. Agason. It's called the Agason score. Hmm. And he came up with this back in the, oh, 1990s. And that's pretty much the standard. Uh, any score other than zero is not good. <laughs> Quite frankly, it's just not right, good. Right, right. So as you get older, some people okay. still don't get calcium, calcium buildup in their pipes. It's just how they are. It's how their body is. Typically, I would say yeah. it's because of their gut bacteria, but whatever. But uh, uh, right, as right. your score increases, I think the record is like a 4,000. Much past that, Whoa. you're dead. Okay, that makes sense. So really, any score other than a zero would require some kind of therapeutic intervention, particularly one that includes vitamin K, right? Wouldn't you say? My background is process controls engineering, and the process of controlling this is, first of all, get tested. So get your CAC score. They're now 100 bucks. You can find them pretty much everywhere. It takes five minutes, 10 minutes to get the test. Non-invasive. It's really cool. Don't worry about the radiation. That's, that's, That's a red herring. So first thing is get it measured. Second of all, slow it down. Thirdly, mm. stop it. Fourth, clean it out. And five, don't let it happen again. It's That's the process and the attitude to take in order to save your life. And most importantly, as soon as you start to, as soon as you get your first calcium test or that CAC score, you have taken ownership and ownership is 99% of the problem. So once you've got that squared away, the rest is duck soup. Fair enough. Now, you had mentioned, you know, it's an easy test to get. It's about 100 bucks. Is that a test? Because, you know, a lot of physicians won't necessarily order it. They kind of think there's not really much benefit to it. Some do. But if somebody wanted to be proactive and take control of their own destiny, is there a way for them to do it without actually needing a prescription from a doctor? Oh, yes. Typically, most of your major hospitals will have you come in, uh, no prescription necessary for 100 bucks. And they'll just take you... uh, it's it's pretty straightforward. Now, the reason why physicians don't typically encourage patients to get CAC scores is, and, and I got this from the chief, former chief of surgeons at Beaumont Hospital in Detroit. He said the people, the doctors, let's say Joe comes in and gets a calcium score of, say, 100. So Joe's nerved up. Typically, protocol is you put him on a statin, say, blood pressure medicine, yada, yada, mm-hmm. yada. Well... They don't want Joe to come back in three years or five years and get another score Hmm. because nothing will have changed or it's gotten worse. And then Joe asks the doctor, what are we doing and why are we doing it? And the medical community doesn't really have an answer for that. So that's why they don't encourage us. But I encourage it because it's about taking ownership in your life. Right, right. I think in the conventional medicine world, if the protocol doesn't change, then there is no ju- justification to obtaining that data is kind of the mentality with conventional medicine. I There's exceptions to that, but I think that's regarding, I think, any area of health. Like, what's the point of knowing if the protocol is the same? And obviously, you and I don't agree with that approach, but that is their approach nonetheless, because they don't have any tools outside their yeah. little toolkit, essentially. So I don't, I don't blame them if they that's have correct. limited tools, right? No. Like, what's then the point? They're going to have to disappoint their patient and say, 
sorry. I mean, yeah, the score went up. I, I, I have nothing else I could give you. Right. So, yeah. So I, so I understand that makes sense. So regarding uh, vitamin K, we're going to take a deep dive, but just as at the beginning, just for, for, for the audience that don't have a really strong grasp of what K is and what it does, could you give maybe just a, a primer to start off with as to some of the, the functions it has on the body and the positive effects it has? Sure. Uh, vitamin K has really not been studied all that thoroughly in the mainstream. Hmm. Vitamin K it could be considered an omnivitamin. For instance, K1, which is found in, say, broccoli or kale, K1 is called your clotting, vac, uh, clotting vitamin because it has to do with impacting your prothrombin time. That's hmm. where the K comes from, for, from the word clotting. As they drill down on K1, they found other Ks that are called menaquinones or MKs. They're also known as K2. That's kind of a generic term for about 13 different chemicals based on the menaquinone backbone. Uh, K1, sure, it has to do with clotting. It also has to do with anti-clotting, which is really bizarre because when you say that to, a, say, a physician or, a, or, or an individual, you, the first thing your body does with K is keep you from clotting, which is, seems so counterintuitive, but that's what it does. K1 is also used to make myelin sheaths in your brain and on your nerve cells. And what's interesting there is it's carried on your LDL. A lot of people hmm. don't know that. Your LDL and HDL carry the, carry, I call them your FedEx and UPS carrying your K all over your body to drop it off where it's needed. Uh, also, K is used uh, in uh, bone formation. K1 is used in that. MK4 is used in that. And the body has a very elaborate, uh, I don't know how you would want to call it, recycling system to make sure that you maximize the K all the time in your system. But yet, the body doesn't store K worth a darn. So you got you have to have a constant supply of K into your system through food or through precursors that the bacteria in your gut can convert into K1 or MK7 or MK4 or MK13 or MK9. Uh, hmm. It's in the Ks are implicated in diabetes. They're implicated in endurance running or any endurance sport. Uh, uh, good Lord, they're, they're implicated in cancers. But the key thing that really drives them is they're implicated in uh, heart, reversing heart disease. That's, that's yeah. their big one, heart disease and osteoporosis. Yeah. So, so that's, it's an omnivitamin. Yeah. yeah. And, and so it's my understanding that vitamin K has more indirect components to it where it basically acts to carboxylate these proteins and the proteins do the magic essentially right you have to have a component enzyme with your k in order for the carboxylation to occur okay so it's it's if you want to call it a catalyst k is a catalyst right. for carboxylation but you need another enzyme to make that reaction happen right right it's almost like you would call it like a cofactor it's needed for the carboxylation of That's these proteins correct. perfect phrase it's a co when you have, cofactor yeah and and these proteins 
they do various different things. It's my understanding there's there's 17 known proteins and some do things relating to shuttling calcium into the matrix of the bone, clotting, like you just said, anti-clotting and so forth. But could you maybe explain for those audience members who aren't quite as nerdy as you and I are what carboxylation is? Oh, good Lord. Well, uh, the 50,000-foot view is you take a, a glue protein and you convert it to a GLA protein. You're screwing around with car- uh, carbon dioxide and, and hydroxyl groups, and you're adding them and taking them away. You're essentially activating the proteins. You're turning them on, right? That's correct. By may, by uh, Well, it's, you're adding a, a carbon dioxide group to it, so it's, it's, it's nerdy. Right. <laughs> you're turning the switch on. Yeah. You're playing around with... Hydroxyl groups and carbon dioxide groups and stuff like that. Yeah. So so I wanted to ask you about some of the concerns surrounding K1 and its so-called, quote unquote, blood clotting actions, right? I think people assume because the anti-clotting drug warfarin is a vitamin K1 blocker, the thought then becomes, well, then taking vitamin K must then contribute to unwanted blood clotting. Now, I would say to that, once all the blood clotting right. proteins are activated, by vitamin K, or more accurately said, carboxylated, then taking more won't somehow make the, the blood clot more. But what are your thoughts on that, though? Okay, to 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 baby step through the whole process, the first yeah. thing that happens in the liver is you've got a protein Z and a protein C. Those are your anti-clotting factors that K1, or as a backup, any of the MKs, carboxylate. Now they're happy. Now you're not going to throw microclots. The right. next factor is protein S, which is found in your epithelial layers of your cells throughout your, you know, in, in your arteries. It get, those get carboxylated next, so you don't throw microclots from those, which is for the things implicated in COVID-19, but that's a whole other story. So right. what then happens is, the liver then says, okay, we've got that happy. Now we are going to make sure our clotting factors are made happy. But you're only going to make so many clotting factors, and that's it. You can't make any more. And then once they're carboxylated, that's it. That party's, that party's done. You, you cannot clot any more than that because that's how you're designed. So then the body has the remaining K, let's just say K1, will then start shuttling it all over the body where it's required. Uh, well, there's a neat study that says just for osteoporosis alone, the body requires one milligram of K1 a day just for that alone. That's pretty cool. Wow. So, But you can't get that one milligram until everything else is made happy. So That makes sense. So... I would I would imagine, given the fact that there is this these anti clotting proteins, protein S, protein C, and protein Z, which it's my understanding they're K two dependent via MK seven, right? So if that's what carboxylates those anti clotting proteins, and is is that correct? Here, here, here again, it's part of the triage management of the body. Yeah. If you have K K one available, K one will do it. If you have MK seven. MK7 will do it. And right. It's, it's, again, whatever the body has in the case, it'll it'll get the job done, which is pretty right. cool, really. It's kind of a neat yeah. process. And, it, and it, essentially, it does this because it takes the K1 that's available, and I would imagine it converts it to K2 
into MK7, thereby using what yeah. it needs to actually promote those anti-clotting proteins, S, C, and Z. Is that, is that accurate? It, it, it can do it with or without it. it. It can be K1 or it can be MK7 in the body or MK4. The body also sends signals to the gut bacteria to make the MKs that you need. So you, you've got, I like to call it a very busy system going on there. It's just not one that can do it. A bunch of yeah. them can do it. But if, let's say you have enough K1 coming into your system that does all the K1 stuff, what's left over, let's say you don't have any K1 left over, the MK7s kick in and the MK7s start doing all sorts of neat stuff in your body. It's just, you know, just handing off the ball, so to speak. Even if you don't have a sufficient amount of uh, K2 in the MK7 form, the K1 will do with it as it needs on a priority basis. It'll preferentially right. figure out a way to make MK7 to do what it needs to do. Or just plain use the K1 as, as K1. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. And in, in terms of the conversion, because I don't think this is widely known, it's my understanding that K1 can convert to K2 and vice versa through the gut flora and in the liver. Now, it's, it's not often discussed, but could you maybe speak to that a bit? Right. What, what seems to be going on in the gut is that the, that the body, through most likely hormonal signaling, is telling the gut bacteria, hey, we need some, pick a number, MK7. And the gut bacteria go, oh, okay, let's see what we've got coming in with uh, double, double, double benzene rings coming into the system. Say, oh, tart red cherry skins, let's say, and the gut bacteria says, hey, we can take this and make some MK7. So it, so it does. It's, it's an amazing dance that goes on in the gut, and it's only now being truly elucidated, and it's, it's amazing. But that appears to be what's, what's happening. For instance, mm. you, can have, you can be in a completely uh, MK, uh, these studies on rats have been, you can be on a completely MK-deficient diet, just feed the rat K1, and all of a sudden, you have MKs floating around in the blood of the rat. How'd that get there? Hmm. And it it happened because the gut bacteria made the made the MKs that it needed. And I believe there was another study on mice in which they how did they do that? They they just in, I think they injected K three, which is something nobody wants to mess with. But they injected K three and just wanted to watch what happened. And the liver in turn took the K3 and converted into K1 and MKs, MKs, which which is just bizarre because they took the gut bacteria out of the equation. So oh, wow. it's like, wow, this is freaky, man, how this works. Yeah. So it just shows you how critical of a nutrient that vitamin K is. And you know, yeah. the body is gonna do with it what it needs to do, especially in a critical right. situation, right? So yeah, that's that's right. that's all, amazing. All, I don't I don't think that's widely known. No, it isn't. It really isn't. It, it's a, it's the, like I said, it's a busy system. And, it's, and if you go to the website, k-vitamins.com, you can see all the peer reviewed literature with Peter Abbott language explanations on what's going on. And it's, it's pretty neat. All the various things that K's do. And uh, yeah. I, I, yeah, I highly recommend anybody to re read that. It's really good. Yeah, no, for sure. Your, your website is a remarkably impressive repository of data on vitamin K. It's just, it's endless. Anyone who wants to know anything about vitamin K, there's like 20 or 30 textbooks just in that website alone. So it's, that must have taken you a really long time, must have been very labor intensive. So I, I appreciate no, that that no. information's out there. No, my, my business partner, Dr. Roxana Transit, did all this work. And I do the wow. proofreading and I, I 
to wordsmith it so that people can easily understand it. But it's it's really her handiwork. She's pretty cool. Well, well, well yeah, she's impressive. It's remarkable. So I wanted to now ask you about the drug warfarin and its effects, not on K1, but actually on K2. Now, given that K2 in the MK7 form directly carboxylates the anti-clotting proteins S and C that we discussed earlier, why then do you think K2 is thought to be contraindicated with the K1 blocking drug warfarin when, if anything, MK7 has indirect anti-clotting properties to it? Well, that has to do with the creativity of the body's liver. And mm-hmm. if if you take MK7, let's say, and I know of a person who has done this, and I don't advocate it, but this person is an ex-Navy fighter pilot, so he's kind of aggressive. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. And he's taken war. And he looks at his INR religiously, and he has figured out how to get his MK7 into his system while he's taking warfarin, and it is working for him. I don't recommend it. Uh, I mean, that's that's really taking it to the limit. But that's the Navy fighter pilot. You know, they're they're out there. Sure, uh, that's the issue. That's right. primarily the issue. And what now? That's why the dabigatrins were developed because the dabigatrins get around the MK issue with warfarin and all that other stuff. That's uh, why why they're there. Um, gotcha. they're the latest thing they found yeah. in warfarin is that warfarin crosses the blood brain barrier apparently and screws up the conversion of K1 into MK4, which screws up the myelin sheath manufacture in the brain. That's mm. pretty interesting. That's terrifying, really. So, gotcha. So, anyway. so do you think it's because the concern is that you know, obviously you, you gave that example that, you know, people theoretically have done well, not that you're advocating, not that I am, but that if you're taking K2, that because there is that chance that that K2 can convert to K1, that then would cause the contraindication, not directly K2 per se. Is that sort of the, the theory on that one? That's, that's, that's correct. Right. Okay. Because the body is engaged in triage biochemistry all the time. So it's always looking for alternative pathways. So let's, you know, I don't want to take for granted that we're throwing a lot of terms out. So I want to, just for the audience, can we maybe break down what MK4 is versus MK7? Because we've been kind of throwing those terms out a lot. They're two different forms of K2. But if you could maybe help me break that down, uh, that would be great. Okay. The menaquinones are basically two benzene rings. Think about it as taking... uh, two rings and just ring rings or two mm. pennies, hold two pennies together. And then off one end of the, of the penny, put a string. And that string is called the tail. And that tail is either has double bonded carbons on it or double bonded, double bonds on the carbons or not. If it's not double bonds, it's phyloquinone, which is K1. And then the menaquinones are how long the tail is. Menaquinone 3, it's got three little carbons hanging out there. Menaquinone 7 has seven, seven, you know, double bonds. Menaquinone 13's got 13 double bonds, 13 carbons all way out there. And uh, that's what it is. Think about it as a tadpole, Mm. a double-headed tadpole. That's what the MKs are. Gotcha. In terms of their function, though, would you say there's entirely separate functions from MK4 versus MK7? Like we had spoken about MK7 
carboxylating protein S and protein C, for example. But does pro does uh, MK4 have very specific and narrow effects that are separate from the MK7? MK4 primarily is involved in bone manufacture and bone 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 construction. Mm-hmm. Now I mentioned about MK4 in the brain, but MK4 in the brain gets there because of K1 and the SXR enzyme. Mm-hmm. Uh, the SXR enzyme plucks the K1 off the LDL particle, pulls it through the blood-brain barrier, and then rejiggers it and makes it into MK4. MK4 does not cross the blood-brain barrier. None of the MKs do. So the okay. remaining MKs that are floating around, other than four, are used, say, in the pancreas. MK7 is very common in the pancreas. Uh, and MK7 is obviously very common in the liver, very common in, in the blood vessels and things like that. But the MK4 is primarily in the bone, and MK7 is primarily uh, heart, heart-related and uh, pancreas-related and uh, prostate-related, testosterone, uh, testes-related, and gotcha. uh, things like that. So when you're taking in K2 with food, fermented foods in particular, are you getting both the MK4 mm-hmm. and the MK7? Well, in the United States, our famous fermented food would be sauerkraut, and right. it's primarily MK7. In uh, Korea, it's kimchi, and that's also MK7. In Japan, the uh, natto is a combination of MK4 and MK7, from what I gather. But what okay. is interesting is that it becomes a precursor. The gut bacteria see the MK7 coming in. The body's saying, hey, I need some whatever, MK9, let's say. And the gut bacteria says, coming up, we'll make it for you. Mm. Okay. And that's so, so the MK7 in supplemental <laughs> form is derived primarily from fermented foods, depending on the brand and so forth. So does that to say that the MK4 in supplemental form is just by virtue of it being in a supplemental form? Is that to say that it is, in fact, synthetic? Uh, the MK7s are made, let me see if I can get this right. They're made synthetically to give you all, all the transform. Uh, uh, companies figured out how to do that. Uh, the and it's there another company makes the MK7 using a broth, so you mm. don't have any uh, how shall I say uh, uh, soybeans involved in that. Another company uses just a broth. Mm. Another company uses soybeans. Another company uses chickpeas. But ultimately, other than the synthetic form, they're all uh, basically a ferment fermentation process and mm. then a carbon dioxide extraction process to make sure that you get the right stuff out of there right. in a proper fashion. Right. They're all up basically 100%, in so many words, 100% trans, meaning that's the active form, and mm. they're not uh, in the cis form. And uh, that's the MK7 side. Now, the MK4 side is, is kind of fascinating. The body will take the cis and the trans form of MK4 and do something with it. But there are only two manufacturers of MK4 in the world, and this starts with a flower petal, and they process it through to make MK4, and they're now making it so it's 100% trans, which is kind of cool. That's wow. kind of cool. So wow. you, so when you, so if you want to transform, they work. Now those are the companies that do it right. Now there's certainly other companies that do other things, and I don't associate with them. Gotcha. So in the form that you just laid out on MK4, it's not synthetic. It's obviously processed in a certain way, but it is naturally derived nonetheless. Although I'm sure there are companies that do make synthetic. 
Yeah, they make. There are companies that make synthetic MK4, and I wouldn't go near them. That's yeah. just my opinion. I agree. You know, I agree. Chemist, yeah. but that's just my. Okay, uh, I got you. I got now you to the say K1. Oh. <laughs> really, yeah, yeah. There's, there's no. I don't go. You know, I. It, what's interesting about this, the K stuff. Hmm. I take this stuff, so I'm highly motivated not to hurt myself. <laughs> I've had yeah, enough experience enough. in my life. I don't need <laughs> Sure. But that, no, like K1 is an interesting thing. That's a broccoli extraction or an alfalfa extraction using carb- high-pressure carbon dioxide. Hmm. And okay. so it comes out as an oil. And again, I know of only two companies in the world that do that. And, you know, the rest of it is synthetic. And I don't, I don't go down that road. I just, just don't. No, so. I don't blame you. I, I don't know either. That was a great overview on that. I appreciate it. So I want to now pivot to talking about K2 and its role in removing calcium from, or indirectly removing calcium from unwanted tissue. Now we know that, you know, K2 is indirectly involved in bone health as well as indirectly removing calcium from areas of the body. It doesn't belong like soft tissue in the arteries. Now, would you maybe walk me through the mechanism of action as to exactly how that works? And maybe we can get into the underappreciated protein FETO-1A and its role in that as well. Okay. Uh, if everyone will be patient, I can walk you through this. And it sounds like some gibberish in some cases, but if you need explanations. Okay. Let's say you've, your, your pipe. Here's a pipe, if you can see this. This is, this is the epithelial layer of your artery. And this is the next layer. So your artery is a pipe in a pipe. Hmm. And in fact, there's another pipe around this. But all the busy stuff happens right in between here. Right, right in there is where all the stuff is that you don't want to have happen. Hmm. you got to get that out of there, period. So like anything else in the world of engineering, if it moves, you know, arteries pulsate. If, if it moves, it breaks. If it moves, how does it break? It cracks. Hmm. Also, if it moves and tends to crack, it'll tend to get infected. Yes, you, you're always carrying bacteria and molds and funguses and stuff like that in your blood, and your body kills it. But if it get, finds a way to get in there, it's going to get in there. So once it gets in there, the arterial system says, oh, my God, we've been invaded. So they send off signals like uh, tumor necrosis factor alpha or, or C-reactive protein and those kind of bad boys to say, help, something's going on. So the body rushes in to help. And it, and it does that through an activation. And I, I'm going to read this because it's, it can get kind of confusing here. You've got a couple of things called ABCA-1 and ABCG-1 is in turn then activated by the free T3, which is a thyroid hormone that in turn got agitated, I'll just call it agitated, by the tumor necrosis factor alpha and the other uh, fire alarms that are being set off. Well, then when that happens, the ABCA1, let's say, shows uh, uh, activates the vitamin D carrying protein. Now D is carried on a protein. It's not carried on LDL and VLDL and all that stuff. It carry, vitamin D has its own truck. So ABCA1 screams at D, hey, we need some help. Then D turns on, on this macrophage, let's say, or this whatever, whatever is invaded, activates the uncarboxylated matrix galah proteins resident on 
the uh, critter that's in there. Say it's a macrophage that gobbled up a bacteria. You use that. Mm-hmm. Or it could be a foam cell that is alive and well and hasn't been killed and consumed. Well, when that happens, that activates the beta HDL to show up. In other words, it squeezes, getting back to this, the beta HDL is inside the pipe. And it squeezes through that layer to get into there or into there. And it's like, okay, I've come to do my thing. And we've all heard about reverse cholesterol transport. And this is the start of it. Okay. The beta HDL shows up with the MK7 attached to the beta HDL because that's the truck that hauls the MK7 around. Well, the MK7 then carboxylates the matrix glob protein resident on the macrophage or foam cell. Well, <laughs> see how this is really starting to get kind of inner. I can send you these in slides in, in this if you'd like. And the carboxylated matrix glob protein, along with CoQ10, allows, and this is what's really cool, the beta, if this is the macrophage, the beta HDL comes in there and hooks onto it like with Velcro. And then it literally starts sucking out the fat out of the, say, the foam cell. And when it's mm. all full... <laughs> It sends a signal to APON to come in there and attach it to the to the beta HDL. That converts it to HDL, which in turn extrudes itself extrudes itself through the epithelial layer back into the blood and goes to the liver for reprocessing. Wow, cool! <laughs> okay. That is that's that's, that that's some process. Well, oh, it's it's just bizarre. And, and being an engineer, I love these kind of things. So I kind of geeky about that stuff. So okay, let's say not all of the foam cells are attacked. The foam cells, in turn, convert the vascular smooth muscle cells, which are associated with this, this this pipe inner pipe right here, and they start morphing and growing into like bone. So they attract calcium and they, and they form bone, a soft bone, but they form bone. And, well, when that happens, the MK7 starts attacking through carboxylation those cells, and that, in turn, sends a alarm signal to phetoin A, to come in and take the calcium out of the pipe and bring it to either the bone or the liver and for reprocessing, which is just, and again, another bizarre thing. But how does the calcium get off of there? It's off of there if you have sufficient magnesium to make it loose. Wow. So that's really the whole. So essentially this, this, (laughs) this long journey is the goal of this complex biochemical journey is to stimulate FETA1A to basically remove the calcium with the help of magnesium to actually remo- remove itself from the arteries and soft tissue where it doesn't belong into the bone matrix, essentially. Is that absolutely okay. wow. spot on? Now, I will give you a little sidebar to this, which is just equally as fascinating. You say, why is it you cre- the body creates foam cells? Well, foam cells are full of LDL. Why are foam cells full of LDL? They're full of LDL because the LDL originally went in there to kill the macrophage with the use of vitamin C mm-hmm. and K1. Now, that that process is called, and I'm not making this up, it's called autoschizots. And it was first discovered in 1999, and it makes all the, all the sense in the world because the body doesn't want that stuff there, and K1... And along with C, kills a lot of things that are growing that aren't supposed to be growing. I'll leave it at that. So that's that's why it appears that's why the LDL was there in the first place. It just didn't go there for giggles. The body always has a reason why something's yeah. doing something. So there you go. 
So Patrick, could you, just for those who don't know, could you just give a, a brief explanation of what foam cells are? Sure. When it when let's say you have a bacteria that gets into your, you know, you're going to get this back up. You get a bacteria in there that's not supposed to be there. The body sends in through here, the macrophages, the repair crew, to patch the crack and to catch the bacteria and kill it. Well, when it does that, it's supposed to die. Well, if it doesn't die for a whole host of reasons, it's the 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 pipe says, uh, we've got something in here that's growing that's not supposed to be growing. And the body says, ah, I've got a solution for that. I'm going to send in LDL and vitamin C. And because the vitamin C is in the serum, the LDL comes in. It's got the K1 attached or supposed to. And the K1 is supposed to kill the macrophage. Well, if it doesn't kill a macrophage, guess what? The macrophage, are you ready for this? It eats the LDL particle. Wow. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, that uh, I want you in my belly. So anyway, so it eats it. So it keeps eating it because the body keeps sending it in there to kill it. And if you don't have enough, you know, K1 attached to your LDL, it's just going to keep on what it's doing. Isn't that something? That's, that's just... Yeah, that's that, that's so amazing. Hard. So so basically, in terms of your intervention, in terms of lowering your coronary calcium score, just to kind of simplify it, taking vitamin K2, particularly in the MK7 form, essentially stimulates FETO1A to we'll kind of skip the, the complex mm -hmm. biochemical journey. It stimulates FETO1A. FETO1A basically then removes that calcium from the artery and then puts it, like I said before, puts it in the bone matrix. Now, in terms of the dosing, would there need to be a pretty robust dose, significantly high to actually stimulate FETO1A to have it be more like a therapeutic inter intervention rather than more of just like a maintenance per se? Yes, there is. And from the experts in the world that have talked to me about MK7, I'm just not winging this. I've, I've talked to the the top guys out there and and I, I just picked their brains and they said it appears and this is from Dr. Sato in Japan and Sugars and Vermeers out of Holland. It appear and and, and to some extent uh, Booth out of Tufts University has talked about it. Somewhere between five hundred micrograms and a one milligram of MK seven is required daily to make all this stuff work. Right. And they're and there required nearly for that, reversal or for maintenance. Both both because you got to you, you do maintenance just means that the stuff is still there. Right. And you got to get it cleaned out. So you, you got to kick the organic reaction. Like organic reactions go up like this and then they collapse. Well, you mm -hmm. want it you want it to be on the collapsing side because that drives the reaction. So Somewhere between 500 micrograms and one milligram is, is, is basically what you need. Somewhere in that ballpark, somewhere gotcha. in there. Nobody really knows. And, and like what Sato told me, he said, you know, just to be safe, he said, take your K1 and just to be safe, take 500 micrograms of, of MK7. And I says, well, what if you have an osteoporosis issue? He says, then take 50 milligrams of MK4. And mm -hmm. he says, this is the best we can figure out at this point in time. This information is a couple of years old. Uh, but in Japan, MK4 and MK7 are the standard. Everybody takes it kind of like aspirin. I mean, you just do, and they're right. reasonably healthy. Right. Wow. So, so, so if someone had 
let's say they got their corner calcium score back and it was like, I don't let's say 2000 or even even higher. Would you then say that taking above a thousand micrograms of MK7 would have sort of diminishing returns and it would essentially reach a certain saturation point where you're not going to further stimulate FETO1A and it's, again, a bit wasteful? Right. Or is there an upper right. limit at all? Well, there's no upper limit to K that anybody's ever been able to figure out. I think the right. world's record is 50 milligrams of K1 for six months or something like that. Okay, to answer your question succinctly, hmm. you've got a score of 2,000. What do you do? First of all, relax. Don't get all nerved up. You're, you're, you're vertical. Okay, that's step one. Uh-huh. Step two, get your right. magnesium right, get your free T3 right, get your D right, and then you're only got so much, your liver only makes so much phetamine, kind of like your liver only makes so, so much prothrombin. That's it. It's all it's going to make. So once you get, uh, let's say you, I'll use the term saturate your system with MK7, that guarantees that you you will have all your FETO-NA doing what your FETO-NA is supposed to be doing, which is the best you can do. It's kind of like uh, the clotting factor. Once you get your prothrombin stabilized at 11 or 12 or 13, whichever right for you, that's good. Be happy. Right. Move on to the next to the next thing. Hmm. Yeah. And that, and that's often the case with the nutrient. You're not overriding the system like with the, the medication. When you're dealing with uh, with nutrients, you aren't overriding the system and you're only you're only maximizing your body's potential by giving even larger doses in most cases. I'm not saying there aren't dangers of taking massive doses, but you're not going to necessarily have more of an effect. It's going to have an, whatever effect it's going to have. And then for the most part, you're going to have really diminishing returns. I was just wondering if we knew what that level is. And I'm sure it's variable from person to person because everyone has a different potential to stimulate FETO1A and so forth. So I wish there were more studies on this. Well, um, right. FETO1A, I think, will be tested as commonly as vitamin D is in the next five years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. FETO1A also, they're also looking to make synthetic FETO1A to help out kidney dialysis patients because they're very low in FETO1A and dialysis patients typically die of heart disease, which is bizarre, but that's because their arteries all harden up and they couldn't figure out why. And they found mm-hmm. FETO1A is this carrier protein for calcium. And that's why taking exogenous calcium, in other words, I tell people don't chew on limestone. Hmm. The body sees all this calcium come into the system and the body goes, what the frick are we going to do with this? So that the FETO1A is called into Call to marshal itself to get the get the calcium grabbed onto, and then it starts shuttling to places where it doesn't belong, like your joints, rheumatoid arthritis, as an example. Mm-hmm. And you, Jesus, just don't do it. Your body, when your body needs calcium, it will send a signal to your gut bacteria to liberate the calcium it needs. It's calcium is unbelievably highly reg- regulated in the body. So. Gotcha. But getting back to the K and how much to take and not to take, and the, the FETO1A just is made by the liver. Everybody's different. Don't know. But yeah. the other vitamins I talked about, like D, as an example, or free T3 and all that stuff, I call that putting air in your tires. There's only so much air you're going to put in your tire, and then mm. it just doesn't no, matter that, anymore. So no, that makes sense, yeah. That's that's the best analogy I can come up with. Just just put air in your tires and take it from there. Yeah. No, that, make, that makes total sense. Um, so I wanted to get into vitamin K testing, right? Now, we know testing for vitamin K is a little tricky. Now, 
there are companies like SpectraCell that test intracellular white blood cell vitamin K mm-hmm. levels, for example. But that only really tells you, assuming the test is accurate, but let's, for the sake of this discussion, just assume that that test is accurate, right? It still only tells mm-hmm. you your supply mm-hmm. of K2, but not the demand for K2. And to know the demand, right. I would think you would need to test your level of decarboxylated proteins, which would then tell you your functional demand for K as opposed to just how much or little K you have on board. Now, what are your thoughts on that in terms of testing? Okay. The, the easiest or the le- least expensive test for vitamin K, well, you've got a couple. You've got PIFCA2, you've got K1, and you've got uncarboxylated osteocalcin. Hmm. Uh, the uncarboxylated osteocalcin test is a surrogate marker for the degree of carboxylation in your body. Right. And you want to drive that as low as possible, but you cannot be fully carboxylated. The body will not allow that to happen because there are many reactions in bone that require uncarboxylated osteocalcin. So makes sense. you got to have makes- some. But you want to be at the low, you want to be you you want to be carboxylated as much as you can. The PIVCA two is another surrogate marker, and say and K one is another surrogate marker. And that's all it is. It just just tells you what you got, and you need to drive it to hmm. to the limit as best as you can. So, with regard to osteocalcin, right, and and the the uncarboxylated osteocalcin test, right. Yes, it's a it's a surrogate marker. But do you think that test, like the result of that test, the results can be extrapolated and used as a proxy for the sixteen other known K dependent proteins, including the K one proteins? Because osteocalcin is just one protein of seventeen. So is is that why you you focus on that one? Because it's a good sort of it's a good means to extrapolate the other markers and give you kind of a a guess as to what they are. Well. I use I use both. I use PIFCA two. I use all three. I use when I the K one test. Given the level of K I take is 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 kind of worthless because I'm off the charts. Mm. The PIFCA two test shows that I'm in pretty good shape, and then the uncarboxylated test. It's a. I'll just be blunt from an engineer's perspective. It's a scientific wild ass guess if it's right, but I mm. think it's right. Okay. Because I don't have anything else to go on inexpensively and that test alone is 180 bucks and you're so you're not going to go do this every every day or every week so yeah but i i do but that's I do the think best I can. yeah i do think there's a lot of value because it is telling you what your functional demands of k is right everyone's different right. some people might not need that much and they're able to carboxylate all their proteins like very efficiently with only maybe a little bit of k2 or or k1 etc so that's why i think it's, right. it's so much more valuable to test your level of uncarboxylated um, proteins. To, to your point, what I did on myself is I've, I've been testing myself so much for the last 18 years. What I found is you burn up vitamin D and, and your MKs just as, when, as fast as you burn up glucose if you work out hard. It's amazing. Yeah. If you put yourself on a very strict exercise regimen, you burn up your D and your K real fast. It's crazy. It's crazy how fast it happens. Okay. So I wanted to actually ask you a hypothetical question, right? So like, I think a lot of people are likely wondering how much this coronary calcium score impacts the risk factor for heart disease, right? So if it's okay with you, I'm going to present to you a hypothetical scenario. I'm sure as an engineer, you probably appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Okay. So 
And it'll maybe help the audience and myself to allow you to sort of quantify something, which we'll find out in a second. So let's say you have, you know, a 60 year old man with a coronary calcium score well over a thousand, yet all his other cardiac related markers are like textbook perfect, right? His APO little a, his homocysteine, mm -hmm. ferritin, C-reactive pro protein, uh, fibrinogen, all his lipids, oxidized LDL, yada, 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 right? All the markers that you can connect to heart health are fantastic, right? So let's just call that person, person A, right? Now we have person B, who is, let's just say his identical twin brother. They have the same body fat mm -hmm. percentage, same weight, et cetera. And he has a zero calcium score, but his blood markers are a hot mess. Now, of the two men, mm -hmm. who would you say is at greater risk for having a future, you know, cardiovascular event? Just obviously you can't know for sure, but just as an engineer, what, what would you say would point to someone at the high risk of the two people? Uh, the best guess would be the guy with the high score. And the reason for that is you've got all sorts of pipes around your heart. And mm -hmm. the score is the accumulated score of all the pipes. So if you have a calcium score. Let's let's just talk about the guy with the 1,000. Mm. Okay, let's say he got a test next year and it was uh, 1,150 and his, and his identical tuna was still zero. That means you have stuff growing in your pipe, pure and yeah. simple, and stuff does not belong growing in your pipe. So it is just a matter of time before those critters bust through and create a clot. Now, can you have that happen with a person who has a zero calcium score? Of course you can. That's my next question. But, the, and again, the statistics of it is quite remote. Uh, in other words, some people say, can you have a clot form you know, when you don't have a calcium score? Of course you can. You can have clots form. If your protein S isn't carboxylated, you can have clots form. My God. So, right. yes, it can happen. But in the bell curve of life, I would bet on the on the other brother to be outliving his, his twin because he doesn't have any calcium. Because it's an indication that stuff is growing and it's leaving a trace of his growth, which is not mm. good. So essentially, the person with the, the blood markers that are a mess, their calcium so score is zero despite their blood markers being a mess. And it, thus, right. you could take that data and say, well, he's not despite the blood markers being a mess, he's not as affected for whatever reason. And the person with the thousand score, despite their blood markers being good is at risk nonetheless. So, I mean, that makes that, yeah, that makes, that makes complete sense. Obviously that would be, that would be an unusual scenario, which is why I wanted to go to the extremes to see where you're, you know, where you're at on that. So yeah, that's great. I have run into people with zero calcium scores in their seventies. And they're and they're if you, if you gave their blood work to a conventional physician, they would say this person should be, you know, in intensive care, and they're fine. There are comorbidities with heart disease that are not being measured, FETA1A for one, uncarboxylated osteocalcin for another, and on and on and on. Those two brothers, let's typically your gut bacteria comes from your mother. Let's say they were not identical twins; they were from they they were C sections. They were a C-section, and they are identical twins. Their gut bacteria will be different. That's a fact. Makes so sense. The yeah, one that with a zero score has a different gut bacteria than the other one, and that's probably, I would say, there's a high probability that it's the gut bacteria 
that is driving that one brother to health and driving the other one not to health. Yeah. They might be identical twins, you know, genetically, but epigenetically, they might not be, despite having, you know, such similarities in terms of, you know, body fat percentage, et cetera. So, yeah, no, I agree with that completely. It makes complete sense. So there's yeah. there's one other thing I want to discuss, and we kind of vaguely, loosely discuss it a little bit. And I know a lot of people are wondering this. So if you have a person who has various conditions that put them at high risk for stroke, would you then encourage that individual mm-hmm. to maybe stay away from K1 so to prevent the activation of the various clotting proteins and perhaps only supplement with K2 in the MK7 form, which serves to activate the anti-clotting proteins such as protein SNC in that particular ind- individual? Well, it all depends on, well, let's put it this way. Let's say they don't have a lot of K in their diet mm. and they start getting microstrokes. Well. It's probably because they don't have enough K. <laughs> it, it all depends. And another thing is you've got other people that get strokes because their blood vessels rupture in their brain. Why do right. blood vessels rupture in the brain? Blood vessels require K for and C for their elasticity and their mechanical integrity. So mm. if you don't have enough K uh, and C, henceforth, you won't have enough structure. And yeah, mm. bad things are going to happen. Just, when you say K, just, are you specifically talking about K K two or K one? Any of the case. Any, any of the case. The body. The body. Remember, the body's got all the various pathways to make sure everything's constructed correctly. Gotcha. So basically, so, by by staying away from K one, an attempt to prevent the carboxylation of those clotting proteins, you're potentially causing another issue, which could be equal to, if not exceed, the initial problem that you're trying to prevent or avoid, essentially. There's no way to beat the system. No, there isn't. Think about this with regards to protein S and uh, its failure to be carboxylated properly uh, given the conditions of COVID. There, It's implicated in that. Okay, mm. you go to the hospital, eat hospital food for a week. Well, there goes your K stores because they don't care about K. Now you start throwing microclots you get transient ischemic attacks, and they go, woohoo, what's going on? So they give people heparin, which is okay. That's that's fine. That's a short-term fix, which is okay. You see see where this goes? It's just you, you, you got to do – you got to put air in the tires first. That's the, right. that's the thing that's got to happen. You got to put air in the tires. So, Absolutely. Yeah. So, Patrick, I wanted to ask you about – I probably know where you stand on this, but I just want to have a like a mini discussion about statins. Now, statins – are considered, to my knowledge, a standard of care if someone gets a coronary calcium score of over a certain threshold, even if that person has healthy cholesterol levels, right? They're essentially given a statin cholesterol-lowering drug. And the reason, to my understanding, is that while statins have not been shown to reverse or even stop the arterial calcification, they have been shown to slow down the progression. So with that said, do you feel there is a case to be made for taking a statin as perhaps an adjunct to vitamin K in hopes of having like an additive effect, particularly in those with a concerningly elevated uh, coronary calcium score? Okay. I, w- I will give you an engineer's perspective on this. And Lay it on me, man. I'm, I'm not wearing a tin hat. So, <laughs> okay. You give, uh, I'll, I'll first start with the 50,000 foot view. You give Joe a statin. You drive Joe's LDL from say 150 down to 50. Let's just say that. Okay. What happens? 
Well, remember what I said about the LDL going in there to kill the foam cells and kill the macrophages? Mm -hmm. You know, the LDL goes in there and the macrophage eats the LDL? Yep. Well, what's going to happen if you don't give the macrophage that food? Slows Mm. down eating. (laughs) That's pretty straightforward. So, like, like most things, this is, this is a reoccurring theme in this in this uh, in this discussion. You're basically potentially helping, potentially helping one problem and potentially causing another in turn by helping with the other problem. So, right, you're trading one thing for another. Right, right is is my understanding. Right. So, I had a feeling you were going to go there, but I just okay. kind of wanted to. We, we had to okay. mention stats before it, it, this it, 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 over. Right, and it gets more fun from here. And I mean this. Uh, if you want to slow down the progression and statins do slow it down, I'm not going to argue with that. And that's how it does because you don't have enough LDL to get gobbled up by the, those feisty little macrophages that are there doing what they're not supposed to be doing. I get that. Well, the, okay, let's, that's the 50,000 foot view. You go to the 5,000 foot view and then you say, what else do statins do? Well, Mm. statins, uh, uh, well, or LDL. LDL is a dump truck that hauls all your stuff around, so you're getting rid of your dump trucks or your UPS trucks or FedEx trucks. Okay, that and what you're left with gets coated with the remaining K's and the E's and the CoQ10s that are in your diet. Okay, I get that. Okay, but it, it's not sufficient for your body, so it's now you've got a compromise. LDL is also used to make all of your hormones in your body, so if you start cutting your LDL, you cut your hormones. You cut your hormones, you induce all sorts of other bad stuff. That's a right. fact. That's not my Vicious opinion. Cycle. That's in the peer-reviewed literature. It really is. Now, the 500-foot view. Statins do not allow the liver to make CoQ10 or at the level it's supposed to. Okay, well, if you don't have enough CoQ10, the, H, the beta HDL can't attach to the macrophage. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> and also, the CoQ10 is a backup to the CoQ10 made in your cells, which is an antioxidant. Mm. So if your cells are under stress, let's say a bacterial or viral infection, and your cells are going, help, help, help get rid of these reactive oxygen species, the liver says, cool, I'll give you a bunch of CoQ10 to help you out. So boom, CoQ10 comes in there. And then when the CoQ10 levels get depleted, the MK7 comes in there and binds up the reactive oxygen species in the cells, which is another fallback position that the body uses. Okay, well, if you don't have, in the original patent for statins had CoQ10 in it because they recognized that CoQ10 wasn't being made. My, my, my. Also, statins impact a certain selenium-containing enzyme that helps the conversion of free T4 to free T3. Mm. Where did we hear about free T3? Mm. My, my, my. (laughs) And then there's two other things that statins do that change the surface of the cells in general. And that's been uh, somewhat flagged in the COVID issues and that the people on statins have less of an impact by the COVID virus. And that is true because they change the surface I'll just call it the surface chemistry of the cell. Think about it as dimples on a golf ball. You change the number of dimples and how they look, something like that. Mm. So other than that, great stuff. (laughs) Hate to be cynical, but, you know, and the whole concept of why do we have a statin is based on a a very poor analysis of the Boston Heart Study way back when. 
They said yeah. LDLs the problem. They left out all the premenopausal women out of that data. And when you add that data in, LDL has nothing to do with anything. Especially if you're not looking at the LDL particles and a lot of the more esoteric markers that give you a, a much deeper insight into your quote unquote just cholesterol, right? So yeah, I think a, right. I think a lot of physicians are behind and they're not really up to date. They're not really ordering those tests um, in addition. And they're just kind of like haphazardly right. uh, ordering a statin. And not to mention, I think with cholesterol, you probably know because you've done so many, uh, so many blood tests that your cholesterol, LDL or HDL, it's extremely variable. Like it could go up or down 20, 30 points at a given time. Yeah. So if you're at the doctor this one day and you get a blood yes. test this one time, you could have a bump of 30 points and then the next day it could drop and now you're being prescribed a drug based on a blip. So that's, I think it's something else to think right. about as, as opposed to getting a series of tests before giving this very st- serious drug that no doctor is going to take you off the drug when you're on it. So now you're on it for the rest of your life and you may not have needed it in the first place. That's assuming you're a person who believes in statins if your cholesterol is over a certain threshold. What if it weren't in the first place? Now you'll never know because it's now artificially been dropped. So you'll never know what your natural baseline is to know if you ever have to go off of it or shouldn't have been on it in the first place. So yes. Um, yeah, I think we've sufficiently just uh, dug into stats. <laughs> so Patrick, I wanted to now shift to talking about my favorite vitamin K dependent protein, and that's osteocalcin, right? So we know that osteocalcin is one of the main proteins circulating in the blood that's responsible for binding calcium ions to the matrix of bone, making bone stronger. But I think many people don't realize that osteocalcin does many other things, right? It it actually acts on the beta cells of the pancreas. It increases the hormone adiponectin, which has almost too many metabolic benefits to list. It stimulates the latex cells to make more testosterone for male fertility. It's just never ending. So my question is, with all the direct and indirect benefits of vitamin K through even just the osteocalcin benefits alone, why do you think vitamin K is not a standard first-line therapy given its wide-ranging benefits and, if anything, is thought to be more of a fringe-type nutrient in some respects? Well, it's a first-line therapy in Japan and standard of practice in Japan. That's just, you know, the MK4 and MK7 is just everybody just takes it because they see the benefit of it. And it's becoming the standard of care in uh, mainland China. It's just, it works. It just, gotcha. it just works. Yeah, let, let me give you an example. Back in yeah, 2002, 2003, vitamin D was virtually unknown in the United States as having impact. Even though vitamin D is involved in over 350 hormonal reactions in the body, hmm. they still haven't been able to figure out all the reactions that K is impacting in the body. But there's a potload to your point. There, there's a lot of them. And uh, wow. It's just wow. Yeah. It's just people need to be aware that, it, 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 again, it's, it's important. For sure. But if you don't take your K, well, I'm still okay. Yeah, that's right. But it's the body has figured out ways of getting around not having enough K at at the cost of quality of life and longevity. Yeah, you can you can do anything you want. That's mm. true. But you aren't going to live as long. You're going to live as and and be have the great quality of life that you want. So yeah, they're surviving and then yeah. they're thriving and and yeah, you need K to essentially thrive. Yeah, exactly. So. I, I would agree 100%. Now, let's talk a bit about your product and what actually is in it and how you came up with those you know, particular ingredients as well as the potency. Now, I want to first say your product has 
by far the highest amount of MK7 I've ever seen in a, in a vitamin K product before. It's, it's impressively potent. So if I may, what is the story behind your concentrated K formulation? Well, this goes back to July of 2010, and I was very disgusted. I was very, I was, I was sad that my, my progression of my heart disease, I'd slowed it way down. I, I, I don't, want, don't want to get into, I cleaned out my left main artery within two years from 2002 to 2005. And then I'll just say I had a speed bump and mm-hmm. it came back with a vengeance. And I'll just leave it at that. I don't want to get into all that, all that other stuff. We can do that some other time. Maybe my, we meet up sometime we'll, over dinner. Sure. So I said, I obviously overlooked something. So I was at my house in Manistique, and I spent close to 110 hours, and I don't know how many bottles of scotch, going over <laughs> all of my lab work, all of the all of the studies I'd looked at, and I said I obviously overlooked something. And I ran into an interesting article published by Mercola in 1999 that talked about the impact of K1. And then I had, and then I went, huh, that's interesting. So I found a lab work that I'd done on K1. And it was by a, a, a doctor in Traverse City. And she said, let's just do this for giggles. I said, fine. I, at the time, I didn't know about K1. I, I knew something in my gut was doing something right. And then I stopped doing something right. But I didn't know what the something right was. So I looked at it. My K1 was low. I said, my, my, my. And then it remembered a conversation I had with Dr. Bill Davis in Milwaukee about his mother taking natto. And the and the case in that, oh, and it seems to help bone health. And I'm going, huh. So one thing leads to another. I discover the publications by Sugars and Vermeers and Suddies and Sato. And I went, my, 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 I think I'm onto something. So then I had to go score some. Then I started my experimentation with K, K1, MK4, and MK7. And so to get that, I I got my K1 pretty easy, but the MK4 and MK7, I went to the uh, Supply Side West Vitamin Conference in Vegas. I'd never been, I'd only been to Vegas when I was seven years old prior to that. So I'm at Vegas and I'm trying to, it's like Cheech and Chong in East Day. I'm trying to go score a key of K. (laughs) 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 Hey man, you got some K there? I'm looking for some MK7 stuff. Okay. <laughs> I was just, I, I because instinctively I knew I was onto something. So it was the great, you know, the great adventure, you know. So I, so I did a bunch of experimentation once I got all my good stuff, and I proved that K was the K was the ticket. So then I started taking it. It stopped the progression, started the regression, and I was really happy. And then uh, 2013, a bunch of Holistic MDs, regular MDs, naturopaths said, Pat, you got to market this stuff. You figured this out. But what was really cool, two years before that, I went to a vitamin K conference in Scottsdale, and that's where I met Sugars, Ramirez, Suddies, Sato, Booth, all the experts. And just naively, I simply asked them the same question. If I was ever going to put this in a pill, what would it have? And so Sato said, 25 milligrams of MK4. Suddies said five, millig- five milligrams of K1, and Sugar said half a milligram of, of MK7. Cool. Okay. Sounds good to me. You're the expert, so you tell me what to do. So I started taking that, and everything was going great. I, I was making my own pills, which sounds rather sketchy. 
<laughs> there was on my kitchen table. It was kind of like I was waiting for Crockett and Tubbs to show up, you know, with their in their fancy car. Nah. I had white powder all over the place. I'm going, oh my god. We threw in a Miami Vice reference in this podcast. I didn't think it was possible. I like that. <laughs> exactly. Was, you know, all I needed was a cigar boat out front, you know. <laughs> so another bunch of people said, you got to do this. And I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, I want a website that doesn't have any marketing on it whatsoever. I don't want to sell OxyClean at 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm not going to do that. I find that morally reprehensible. I just, just how I am. And I said, okay. And we're going to price it so people can afford it. And everybody said, oh, it's a miracle drug. It's just, just that's it. I said, look, it. If, the, if, the, if Joe and Mary, can, normal American, can't afford it, what's the point? All you're doing is is so close yet so far. You don't want to do that. It's a moral thing that I have. It's just how I am. So we priced it so we had like a 3% margin. And uh, we then started doing all the things per the FDA, all the all the things the right way, you know, certified pill makers and bottle makers and all that other business. And then we just started marketing it. And and I didn't do any advertising on purpose because I don't want to come out as a, a shiller or a charlatan. And uh, we just slowly, but slowly, but slowly just started gaining our, our customer base. And uh, uh, due to the FDA rules, I'm not allowed to publish results. But I can say there's a lot, I'll just say this, there's a lot of repeat customers for good reason. And, yeah. you know, I'm that, very humbled so, by it. So just for the audience, a little bit of context, like a half a gram per pill of MK7 is literally unheard of. That is a... No, no, it's a milligram. No, I'm sorry, half a milligram. milligram. Right, right. So so 500 micrograms, I apologize. That is a very, very, very high dose. You'll oftentimes see 160 per pill, 180 per pill. You'll never see 500 micrograms in a pill ever. So that's incredible, especially if you're trying to partake in a, in a therapeutic intervention. That's an right. incredible dose. What I wanted to ask you, well, two things. I see you also have MK4 in there as well at 25 milligrams. Now, it, we had kind of right. touched upon this a little bit. The MK4 in a di- added to the formula, from what I understand, that is what helps essentially put calcium or shuttle calcium indirectly or directly into the bone matrix, whereas MK7 is a little bit more for removing the calcium from the soft tissue and the arteries. Is that, obviously I'm oversimplifying for the sake of time, but is that, right. is that essentially right. what it's about? Right. So, like Sato told me, 500 is the maintenance dose. If you have yeah. 25 micrograms of MK4, that's the maintenance dose by his standards. 500 micrograms is the maintenance dose. And studies told me five milligrams is the maintenance dose. Mm-hmm. It's not even a therapeutic dose. That's just what you should have is what, you sure. know, in, in studies is the father of K1. He's passed away now, but he's, his books are stunning and what, what they imply. Yeah. So, so, you know, I, I see you, you also have two milligrams of astaxanthin and astaxanthin is actually not an inexpensive product in and of itself. So it's, it's amazing how well you priced your item, but it is two milligrams of astaxanthin, which for those who don't know, it's a powerful antioxidant. Now, do you add astaxanthin for direct therapeutic reasons or is it because do you use it sort of as a natural preservative essentially or both? It's used as a natural preservative for starters, and it's a micro-encapsulated astaxanthin, meaning that it makes it through your gut. It makes it through your stomach. 
the regular astaxanthin powder, about 80 to 90% of it is consumed or just destroyed by your stomach acids and stomach uh, enzymes. So you have to get the stuff to your small intestine, and that's why it's micro-encapsulated, and that's why you only need two, two, two milligrams because oh, that's, that's the equivalent of 10, 10 milligrams of powder. Yeah. And so it does a dual role, and uh, it's, it's, it's good. One more, one more thing, one more arrow in the quiver, and that happened because when I was first selling the product, a number of people said we would like to see astaxanthin in there because people get this pill pill overload, and I fully agree. I've got a tackle box of pills, and people are just sick and tired of it. And I said, well, if I can give, okay, I'll do it for you. So I did. I'm pretty easy about this stuff. It's yeah, kind yeah. Of fun. It's just kind of neat. For sure. And just for those who don't know, astaxanthin, it's basically a freshwater like microalgae, right? And it, it basically obtained from fish that consume the algae. But what's interesting is that a lot of people have concerns over consuming antioxidants because it could block hormesis. And, and they're right, it can block hormesis. And hormesis is basically when your body goes through a stress and then it triggers your own internal production of antioxidants. But what's interesting about right. astaxanthin is that the algae actually creates astaxanthin in response to stress. So astaxanthin is basically right. hormesis in a bottle, essentially. Like its its very existence was formed from hormesis. So I think that's why it, right. it's almost in a separate category than your other antioxidants. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there. Right. So it's great right. that you added that right. to the formula. It's just another, it's like a bonus. Finding the right astaxanthin, I first had to find one microencapsulated. The astaxanthin itself is made in a big astaxanthin farm in China, but the extracted astaxanthin then goes to a pharmaceutical-grade facility in Japan to verify quality and microencapsulation and all the, uh, how shall I say, chain of custody, which is mm. really important. And, that's uh, awesome. Then that's awesome. Then I buy from those guys. Yeah. And, Mm-hmm. Oh, that's super cool. Well, Patrick, yeah. it's been really fun talking to you and nerding out over vitamin K with you today. You know, I really appreciate you taking yeah. the time to share with us your vast knowledge and research. Um, but before we close out, why don't you tell the listeners where they could find you, your writing and your concentrated K product? Okay, you go to K, the letter K and then a dash and then vitamins, plural, hmm. k-vitamins.com. And you can see where the pure, the I don't know, library of all the peer-reviewed literature on K is sitting with with rational explanations. And like I said, Dr. Transit is the curator of that uh, library. And then there's two things on there. It's my story. It's kind of how I got to where I am. And then the Cardio Manifesto part, it's part two, and I go, it's part D-E-U-X, part do, like the movie. And uh, I I have to interject a little humor in all this stuff because... For sure. People get scared, and you know I was scared. I know I know I know that feeling really well, and and there you can see some really good stuff. And there's a phone number if you ever want to call me. I, I answer my phone typically in the evenings, and I've talked to people all over the world and encourage them and coach them and and uh, give them a hug and uh, go from there. But right. yeah, it's uh, you can order the product there, and it's and it's called Concentrated K K O N C E N T R A T E D K. That's the name of the product, Concentrated K. We only sell one product because we want to be the best at it. And it's the same price we sold it uh, seven years ago. And we have no intention of raising the prices. We just don't. We just just don't do it. That's awesome. I, I can't tell you much. I appreciate all you've done. Your product is fantastic. And your website 
has just so much information. Anyone out there who wants to learn more about uh, vitamin K in any capacity, just go to Patrick's website. It's phenomenal. So thank you for coming on. I had a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. I hope you come back. Yeah, well, you get feedback from your from your audience and uh, you just name the time and the place. And I'll be happy to help. You got it. All right. Take care. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode. Patrick is an amazing guy and has such an inspiring story. I mean, here's someone who years ago got his coronary calcium score measured for the first time and it comes back sky high, right? And while despite all the medical authorities insisting to him that reversing the score was impossible and that maybe the best he could hope for was slowing down the progression, he just refused to accept that. And instead of becoming you know, just depressed as most people understandably would, he instead just became determined to finding a solution. And so he applied his biochemical engineering background by just devouring the medical literature and ultimately found a solution, right? And I mean, you know, it took 16,000 hours, but he figured it out. And in doing so, he became the most knowledgeable person on the planet when it comes to vitamin K. It's just a remarkable story about a man's quest to saving his own life with just sheer relentless determination. And also, if you guys hadn't noticed, he's also just a funny dude with a great personality to boot. I just had a blast making that episode with him. All right, well, I wanna thank you guys for subscribing and for leaving a review. If you like the content on today's episode, also leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really means a lot and it helps a tremendous amount. All right, well, that about does it for today. Until next time, take care, everyone. This podcast for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed in this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast disclaims responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties for guests' qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.